Renegade Aviator, David Costa. Oh, oh, up and done. Two soldiers, five. We are the airfield and airspace. You are clear for takeoff. Have a good one. Thanks, Mo. Clear for takeoff. Check your bucket brake off. Check your trim set. Check your nozzle steering on. Maneuver. Damn it, half scorpions. Left turn out. That's what I'm up. Off brakes now. The Renegade Aviator combines jet airshow performances and this radio show to promote aviation, excellence, overcoming obstacles, and achieving goals. Here he is, the Renegade Aviator, David Costa. Ha <laughs> ha, this is David Costa, the Renegade Aviator, with you for another episode of the Renegade Aviator radio show, because I couldn't think of anything more creative to call my radio show. The Renegade Aviator radio show, you found me, I'm back here each and every week. A reminder, did you know that I have about, I don't know, almost 200 episodes that you can go back and listen to. If you think that once a week is not enough to listen to me, David Costa, the Renegade Aviator, you can go back. You can go back to my podcast and you can listen to me over and over and over again. Actually, I'll do you one better. We've got guests. Most weeks, we have guests really cool guests, people that have done really cool things in aviation, people that are air show performers, and people that put on air shows. That's what we're about. We're about air shows because that's my passion. That's what I do. I fly my TS-11 Iskra jet at air shows, and we're going to do more of that after this COVID BS is done with. More on that a bit later. And uh, we're doing world records. So, Two plugs before we start the show. RenegadeAviator.com. Renegade AV, the number 8R, I can't spell. RenegadeAviator.com. And then WorldRecordJet.com. But before I kick off this week, I want to read to you an article that is from way back in 2005. So don't hit off on your podcast. Um, it's called The History of Air Shows, and it's written by John Sponauer. And John, if you're listening, this was written originally in the Atlantic Flyer. And you know what? I don't even know if the Atlantic Flyer is around anymore. Somebody help me out. But it's an article, and I'm not going to read it word for word, but I'm going to read most of this here because I think it sets the stage for what I want to do today on the show. So here we go. With today's multi-million dollar flight lines, professional performers, and routine appearances by the top-of-the-line military aircraft, it's perhaps easy to think that today's airshow environment is bringing the world of aviation to the public like never before. Millions of Americans will take to a show this year, set in one of hundreds of venues. While the warmer states have enjoyed some great performances already in 2005, spring and summer opens up the rest of the nation to the airshow circuit. 
and the crowds will soon pack venues large and small, sharing the experiences of the beating sun, hot tarmac, strained necks, ears, and eyes. However, even the huge drawl of modern air shows, they don't have the societal impact as those held in the first decades of aviation. Nor can most of us easily understand the sensation aviation caused in those early years. Barely six years after the Wright brothers' first flight, it wasn't unusual for large air shows to attract more than 250,000 spectators in the course of a week. In fact, some crowd estimates of what's often considered the first international air show, which was the Rhymes Air Meet back in August of 1909, that was in France, by the way, range as high as a half a million people. American University researcher David Angst, who helped compile the history of aviation for the Centennial Flight Project in 2003, described the airshow grounds as a mini-city. They built barber and beauty shops, telephone and telegraph offices, and a huge grandstand complete with a 600-seat restaurant that overlooked the field. This is 1909, ladies and gentlemen. To keep people entertained between flights, they hired stilt walkers and tightrope artists to perform. For those seven days, attendees marveled at nearly two dozen aviators, all but two were French, and their aircraft raced, performed aerobatics, competed in distance and passenger-carrying competitions, and more. Not only was the concept of aviation new, but there were some of the pilots, one of the Rhymes competitors, had only learned to fly a few days prior to the event. Imagine that. <laughs> Coming on the heels of Louis Blaroit's cross-country channel flight a month prior, his appearance in the event's Gordon Bennett Cup race was a major draw. However, his primary competitor, American Glenn Curtis, completed the 10-kilometer course a mere six seconds ahead of Blaroit's time, winning over the French crowd and taking home $5,000 in prize money. That wouldn't pay a performer for one day for one performance in today's world. Anyway, um, where was I? A year later, the tables were turned on the Americans at their first domestic air shows. In January 1910, at California's Dominguez Field, it's not there anymore, Dominguez Field, Frenchman Louis Pullman broke an endurance record carrying a passenger 110 miles in two hours and an altitude of 4,164 feet. Records, as well as captivating the crowd with an aerial bombing demonstration, he walked away $19,000 richer, although Glenn Curtis again claimed air speed records of 55 miles per hour and won the prize for the quick start as well. Crowds were estimated at between 250 and a half a million for this 10-day event. As more shows were performed in 1910 on the heavily populated East Coast, the idea of aircraft as entertainment took hold in the public's imagination. Official exhibition teams, often backed by names as famous as Wright and Curtis, 
were created to compete in competitions and shows across the country and around the world. Races from city to city attracted the best upcoming pilots, a demographic which still could be counted in the dozens in 1911. At one point that year, the United States had only 26 certificated pilots, compared to more than 350 in France. The danger and the thrill of the sport appealed to crowds in a manner perhaps comparable to stock car racing today, although perhaps because aircraft performers suffered a stunningly high rate of accidents and death. Richard Onk cites a figure showing that approximately 90% of exhibition pilots of the era died while flying. Fast forward to the day where more than 99% of the people survive. We're canceling air shows, but I digress. <laughs> Let me go back to the article. If death in aviation were a morbid appeal to fans, World War I brought it in spades. The onset of war soon dashed the more frivolous air show atmosphere, but it also allowed for it to grow exponentially afterwards in America. A glut of pilots, a surplus of military training aircraft combined to make the 1920s the golden era for American air shows. Most, usually small, informal normal barnstorming events. I'm going to get into this later in my show. With surplus Curtis Jenny trainers being sold by the government for only a few hundred dollars, that was pilots could easily buy one and recoup their investment by offering rides at small towns across the nation for as little as one dollar. People paid. Barnstormer promoter Ivan Gates Traveling Act once brought in nearly $1,000 in a single day from $1 airplane rides. Loops, stunts, and aerobatics were part and parcel of the barnstorming routine, as was wing walking, a, uh, a more adventurous activity. If you go back, I've had a wing walker on my show, Carol Pilon. Go back and listen to that episode. Anyway, with little to no regulation of their flying and nearly endless supply of open farmland on which to land and advertise a show, Remember, I'm going to bring this up. The small air show matters. Barnstorming swept across America in the early 1920s, drawing in pilots later to make their indelible mark on aviation history. The likes of Wiley Post, Charles Lindbergh, Poncho Barnes all worked as stunt performers, as air show pilots at one point in their lives. And the spread of small affordable air shows hasten the love affair with airplanes and aviation that continues to this day. But today, our air shows, for the most part, are shut down. That's why we're here. That's why you need to keep listening. If the teen years were the decade of aircraft as curiosity, and the 1920s ushered in the idea of flight to the nation via barnstormers, the 1930s was the area of the racer and the start of the industrialization of aircraft design. The four major races for the area, the, Sh the Schneider, the Pulitzer, the Thompson, and the Bendix, all varied somewhat in the flavor of tone, while military and government teams were the focus of the Schneider Cup and the Pulitzer races, the Thompson was selling something new and exciting. 
not so much a timed race by a single aircraft at a time, but numerous airplanes and pilots jockeying for position on a pylon-marked race course. We just had Fred Telling of the Steel National Championship Air Races on my show. Go back and listen to that. Full forward to today. That also canceled this year. But back to the article. Private pilots and aircraft designs such as the Granville Brothers GB stood out at the Thompson races and aviation legends were made. That's what air shows do. That's what air racing does. Lastly, compared to the frantic wingtip to wingtip action of the Thompson race, the Bendix competition was a distance, a transcontinental race that nicely mirrored and supported the growing desire for long-distance commercial air travel. Crowds at the races as high as a half a million for some in 1929 dropped as the Great Depression took hold. But even so, major events like the 1937 Thompson race drew upwards of 100,000 spectators. At its heyday, air racing was second only to baseball in terms of crowd popularity. Other factors soon reduced the attention on the sport, much as World War I temporarily focused aviation's attention onto the serious matters of war. Aircraft development in the late 1930s and 1940s became less of an individual's project and more of a government an industry function driven on by the massive needs of the war effort. Post-war air shows largely changed to reflect that, and today's major air shows, to a large degree, focus on the world's most sophisticated aeronautical products. The industry has come a long way from the legends of the past and their rickety, often homemade flying machines. It was the early pioneers landing in open fields across the nation that captured the public's attention whenever the sound of an engine appeared overhead. Their legacy is the loud and popular air show of today which continues to bring the world of aviation to the public. Hey, boom, this is Rick Myers with Firewalkers Pyro, talking with David Costa here at Renegade Aviator Radio Show, and we're talking about the air shows and blowing things up, so we're going to have a great time today. The good and the bad and the ugly, baby. So we're here now. We're here sitting here today with... Air shows that are closed with a virus that has shut down the air shows. And I could do a whole show, and those of you that know me, I could do a whole show on COVID-19, but I'm not. I could start out and start out with the good. That was pretty good, right? What I just read you, that was pretty good. The good, the bad, and the ugly. But I'm going to reverse it around on you because I'm going to turn this show the other direction. The reason for the Renegade Aviator Radio Show is to promote air shows, air show performers. This is more than just rich guys flying airplanes in front of crowds. And, and it's a passion of mine, and it's a needed element in our society today, especially with this attempt to distance the world, to reset the world, and to make us afraid from a virus that kills less than 1% of the people that it affects. 
So let's go back to a couple of other things. I'm going to go backwards. Remember, I told you I'm going to go backwards. This is a fun show. This is not designed to be super negative, but I'm going to touch on the ugly first. So I said the good, the bad, the ugly. I'm going to go backwards now. The ugly, the bad, and then we're going to end with the good, and everybody's going to cheer, and you're going to go about your weekend and say, wow, renegadeaviator.com. I got to go there. Check out this Dave Costa guy. He's pretty damn cool. Anyway. So the ugly with air shows, you know, and I'm not going to go over crashes, but when people go to an air show, the first thing they think of is risk, risk. It's risky. Pilots up there are risking their lives. And we've had people like Kyle Franklin on the show and we've had Skip Stewart on the show that have basically said, look, we need to make things look scary, but they need not be as dangerous as you might believe. But there's a debate going on right now in the air show industry. And um, I got an article here that I'm just looking over. I'm not going to read you the article, so don't change the channel. Over air shows and the fees that are paid and the government involvement and the safety regulations. So there's a split between the regulators, the insurance companies, the air show event planners, and of course the fans who go there. There's kind of a quote here. Seeing thrilling aerobatics is part of the appeal of air shows, but what about the public outside the boundaries of the air show? And that's kind of interesting, right? We talk about what we call maybe duty of care, and we talk about risk from an air show insurance standpoint. So anytime we have a problem at an air show where an aircraft goes down, it, it increases our insurance rates astronomically. So crashes like what happened at the Reno Air Races a few years ago. This uh, article I'm looking at here talks about the Shoreham crash in the UK uh, where a vintage hawker hunter went down into a freeway so now we talk about you know what is the risk involved with uh, people outside of the air show right there's an informed risk when you walk into an air show an informed risk saying hey i'm here there's airplanes flying over my head and there is a chance that an airplane might fly into me Uh, but it's a far different deal when an aircraft crashes outside of the show venue so that's ugly right because if we're a society that can't handle any risk at all as a society what does that mean for air shows and here's my question to you can the government regulate safety i mean i the government can regulate anything but are those regulations are those regulations proven to work here's one thing about the government when the government does something there's no um problem to them if they get it wrong. So they pass a law, the laws cost money, the laws restrict what you can do, and if it doesn't work, nobody gets fired. So anyway, so why am I going this route? Because I am a believer in the smaller air shows. In the first segment there, we talked about air show performers and these small little barnstorming events. For the smaller air shows, you know, these little air shows, they don't make a lot of money, and they haven't anticipated the cost of insurance and fees and regulations. So when we get into this highly litigious, highly regulated environment of the air show industry, especially, and this article is written in Europe, especially in Europe, Europe is far less risk averse than we are in America, uh, there's a potential for problems. So the article goes on here is that unless new requirements are met, the regulator will be unable to permit, putting that in quotation marks, the show to take place. 
And so here's where we go back. Government permission to do anything. And boy, does that affect air shows. Some argue that, as I mentioned, this is from the article, some some argue that the new regulations will indeed add nothing to safety, while others argue that even if there's a million and one chance of a regulation working, it should be done. So like I said, zero accountability for the government regulators. And so here's what this works into is ticket prices. And here's where I'm going to this. So you ultra regulate an air show, ultra regulate it, making everybody safe. And what's going to happen is the price of the tickets go up for the air show. Less people can afford to come in. Uh, the, uh, The promoters have a tougher time then attracting sponsors. And then from there, the more people tend to stand outside you people that go to air shows and stand outside of the gates to watch it, you're hurting the air show industry. And you're also opening up the whole industry for further litigation because the more fans you have outside of the air show venue, if a tragedy should occur and somebody dies, they're going to hold the air show responsible where you people would have been safe if you just came in the front gate and paid your 25 bucks. Anyway, off my soapbox again. Air shows, by the way, positive thing here, are calculated to be the most popular outdoor public events. In the UK, they mentioned football. In the US, we mentioned football. Neither football is alike. Anyway, has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Back on to here. So there's a big deal with the air shows is STEM education. And why? This is under the ugly side of it. Because the government, the military, and the industry needs to recruit people. So without our air shows, when our air shows are dark, we have less chance to recruit people into an industry where we need you. Because it's a national defense issue. It's a space exploration issue. It's really freaking cool. Anyway, on to my next ugly point here and this is from i'm going to mention his name because he's an idiot dr gary coles this is from global research july 18th 2018 and here's the other wackos that you have hurting our air show industry it says a short history of the cost of military air shows and he goes on and he i'm not even going to read this article but he talks about that um, here we have these military demonstration teams, the evil Thunderbirds and the evil Blue Angels. I'll just read you one since I prefer to Blue Angels uh, today. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a former Marine. I can say I prefer to Blue Angels. Just listen to this one statement. The Blue Angels have been petrochemically poisoning the Gulf of Mexico when the Navy thought it was wise to have its jets dump their excess fuel over the Gulf just prior to land in order to decrease the remote possibility of a lethal fireball engulfing the plane and pilot in case of a crash landing. That's kind of where this guy goes. He's an environmental wacko. Talks about, here's a headline, JP-5 jet propellant is highly toxic when burned or dumped. Please, uh, ladies and gentlemen, do not drink JP-5. And here's another one, the sobering economics of military air shows. Just read you one sentence here. The fuel consumption data for the Blue Angel and Thunderbird air shows are generally kept secret. And for good reason, the alarmingly high fuel consumption would tend to dampen the enthusiasm for all but the most patriotic, thrill-seeking, or willfully ignorant ticket buyers. Imagine that. So while the air shows are dark, ladies and gentlemen, you got idiots like this 
that are out there trying to keep them dark. Make no mistake. And he goes on about the Pentagon's missing $23 trillion. Can it be blamed on military air shows? And then he goes on to how much money it costs to train pilots that they wouldn't have to spend. And here we go. Listen to this. Squandering increasingly scarce fossil fuel. Oh no, for our amusement. You idiot. Dr. Coles. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. I'm going to say his name again. So um, here we go. Last part of his article so I can get rid of this moron. But there's a lot of morons like this out there. And if you're listening and you're one of those morons and you took what I just said personally, good. Change the channel. Anyway, (laughs) he finishes up. Sadly, the Thunderbirds. Their sponsors and fans are unconsciously hastening America's impending moral, energy, climate, and financial collapse by ignoring the wastefulness of burning up precious, expensive, non-renewable fossil fuel resources while simultaneously poisoning the planet and risking the health of everybody, including America's prosperity. And that brings me full forward into this COVID BS. Because now, if you go outside and stand next to people, you're going to die. The whole world is going to die. We need to cancel air shows. We need to have drive-in air shows. You need to show up in your car, stand 80 feet apart, wear a mask, spray Lysol on each other. Lysol, this is not a commercial for Lysol. I gotta, I gotta stand back on that. Anyway. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. So that's where we're going with this. So uh, let me go and lighten things up now. That was the worst. That We got through the worst of it. It's like we just took our vaccine right now. It's going to get a little bit better. Listen to this one. Impromptu Air Show Act nets a seven-month suspension. A glider pilot has updated a popular YouTube channel uh, with a cautionary tale of how a little flattery can turn into a seven-month certificate suspension and thousands of dollars in legal fees. Bruno Vassal was showing off his ASW 27 high-performance glider on the ramp at an air and car show at Spanish Fork Airport in Utah. By the way, Spanish Fork Airport, Mike Patey, he was on our show good guy go check out his videos back to the article when one of the organizers asked him if he'd like to show the crowd what a soaring plane could do why not what could i do with an asw 27 that would be interesting and really wouldn't kill me (laughs) i i think of this often he mused in his original post from the cockpit video of what became his impromptu air show performance after a series of loops and low passes from a 3,000 foot tow while keeping out of the way of a sightseeing helicopter from the field vassal was pretty pleased with himself and the reaction from the crowd and uh, what a random and interesting experience Uh, he was also proud of the fact that the video gathered 200,000 views in four days but he didn't know that the FAA was among those clicks so vassal get this one has no training or credentials for air show performances and the agency takes a pretty dim view of those who flout the regulations the end result was seven months on the ground looking up quote i was told i was very lucky that i didn't lose my license over this so uh, he wrote in the epilogue to his video which now has 650,000 views and he quotes again i hope this will help other pilots 
to not have to go through what I went through over the last 10 months. Ladies and gentlemen, do not try air shows at home. You're not qualified and the FAA won't appreciate it anyway. This is Skip Stewart of Skip Stewart Air Shows, and I'm with Dave Costa on the Renegade Aviator Radio Show. Next thing on my list here, this is from 2013, it's kind of a reminder. The great air show debate, are air shows dying? The recession in 2008, it says, accelerated the trend as sponsorship budgets shrank and a number of paying visitors declined. The air shows started to have problems. Ladies and gentlemen, here's where we are again. So it's my reminder to you to contact air show sponsors and let them know that, hey, we've appreciated you sponsoring events in the past. We understand this is a tough time for America, and we would appreciate it if you would continue to support our air shows. Back then, during the last recession, the focus was as small air shows dried up. And so then there was a focus on these few major shows, right, to kind of keep the industry alive. And I disagree with that. So when I talk about the May Day Save Our Air Shows, I really want to put a plug out to you small local events, small local airports. You are the saving grace for the air show industry. Even if it just means static displays with food trucks, we need to stand tall and get back in spite of COVID-19 and keep aviation events going. So uh, that's that. I'm going to give kudos out to one of our air shows. Here's a quick article I just found the other day, Keeping the Moses Lake Air Show Alive. So, you know, it's one of the many air shows this year that had to uh, shut down. I mean, all of our air shows canceled. We didn't fly one air show this year, and we won't. But what I'm, I'm thrilled at is the air shows are working really, really hard to keep these events going and to keep aviation in front of you the fans. And so what they're doing is they're putting on a series of videos, you know, videos about the the air show performers, and they're trying to do something to keep their venue alive. But here's another side to this with air shows, and and this comes from their uh, public relations uh, person, and her last name is D'Souza, and I can't find, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I can't find her first name. Anyway, last name D'Souza, sorry. (laughs) So it says here at the end, to promote both the show and Moses Lake, and, and that's the key, is that a lot of these air shows promote the local community. It's not just the event. You're promoting the entire community, and the Moses Lake Air Show is one of those. They want to make the Moses Lake Airport a destination for aviation. It's got a beautiful set of facilities there. It's a huge runway, and they do a lot of flight testing out there, which, by the way, the reason I mention that is we are going to do some of our flight testing for the WorldRecordJet.com program. We are going to do some of that testing at other airports and it looks like the Moses Lake Airport may be a great place to go. Why? Because then we can invite fans and people that are involved from a wider end. If we just did all of our flying in one area, it's not good to attract the people that we want to attract. Anyway. Now this is Fred Telling of the Reno Air Racing Association and I'm with David Costa today on Renegade Aviator Radio Show and delighted to be here. 
You ready for some good stuff, man? You ready to hear some good stuff? Well, here we go. Air shows, as we said at the start of the show, have a rich history. Since the first person learned to fly, aerial stunts have wowed crowds of people from the ground. And for many people in the early 20th century, flying was unreal. It didn't seem possible. But seeing was believing. And if you don't believe something is possible, witnessing it in mass is something that's truly spectacular. And that's a quote from Sarah Simonovich. Boy, I messed that one up. The history behind modern day air shows. And that's a great quote. It's a great statement she makes. Is that when you witness excellence in mass, it's powerful. All you people to come out to air shows to watch excellence demonstrate is what we talk about on this show each and every week. Excellence demonstrated is a powerful, powerful force, and we need that now in this country. It's the second most popular spectator sport in America and around the world, but in America, it's second to NFL football, and nobody's kneeling at air shows. How about that one? We'll get into Black Lives Matter in a second. <laughs> this is why I normally have guests on this show, because I can go a little bit crazy there. But there's uh, over 23 million people attend more than 400 air shows annually. To lose our air shows is horrific, and we're not going to let it happen. Okay, I mentioned, um, I mentioned Black Lives Matter. And why would David Costa, the renegade aviator, touch the third rail of a show about aviation and get into race or sex or something like that? Because here's why. I'm kind of sick and tired of hearing about how people are excluded, how aviation is exclusionary, how, you know, if you don't have the proper pedigree, you can't get into aviation. I'm going to read a headline here, so don't fall over. Remember, this is the Renegade Aviator radio show, not... Mr. Rogers' radio show. Anyway, the colored air circus in Perry Mason was real and revolutionary. So evidently there's some new show coming up where it's the new Perry Mason. But I just want to read you just a couple snippets here because this is another, this is the good, man. This is why air shows are so important. On December 6, 1931, thousands of Angelinos filled the field of the Los Angeles Eastside Airport in East Montebello Gardens. Although it was winter and the depths of the Great Depression, they forked over 50 cents to watch daredevils parachute from planes and airplanes in breathtaking formations. The colored air circus, a benefit for the city's unemployed, was one of the first air shows in the world piloted entirely by black aviators. Think about that for a second. Even the Los Angeles Times, known for ignoring events by and for people of color to say nothing of its racist reporting on issues such as housing and segregation and police brutality, gave the air show a good review. It's the quote here. The Black Eagle, known in private life as Colonel Hugh Julian and five other colored pilots, kept nearly 10,000 necks craned skyward over Los Angeles Eastside Airport yesterday afternoon during the Colored Air Circus conducted under the auspices of the Associated City Employees Fund for the Unemployed. Along with the Black Eagle flew the five Blackbirds, 
a stunt squadron of colored speed aces. Stunt and parachute leaps completed the afternoon of thrills. And here's why I, I state this. And, you know, hey, that's the way people talk back then. So if you're offended by the way I, I'm just reading this, this is from an article, the uh, Colored Air Circus and Perry Mason was real, was real and it's a, uh, you can find it, laist.com. So you can go find it there. I want to make sure I give them credit for the article. But we talk of role models. And I've heard this from female aviators and aviators of color, that we don't have any role models. And my opinion is the color of your skin or your sex or your gender should not define you. This is why I love air shows, because excellence matters, not your sex, the color of your skin. But you know what? If you really need a role model that looks like you and sounds like you, then you need to look a little bit harder because there's examples out there like this example that I never knew about. And you know what? If you can't find a role model, I'm going to give you an assignment. If you can't find a role model, consider being one yourself. Aviation and air shows is excellence, overcoming obstacles and achieving goals kind of neat here with this back to this um this this uh, first black air show uh, the event this is again quoting from the article the the real event was the brainchild of a lanky pilot and aviation educator named william j powell a world war one veteran and successful owner of a chain of chicago gas stations how could that be he was black how could he own a chain of gas stations i never heard of such a thing anyway powell had become enthralled with flying in 1927 after taking his first spin above Paris, turned away from numerous aviation schools because of his race, he was finally accepted into the Warren School of Aeronautics located at 120 West Lawson Avenue in 1928. So you know what he did? He didn't quit, ladies and gentlemen. This is an outstanding individual. After earning his pilot's license, Powell worked to convince other African Americans that the burgeoning American aviation industry offered them opportunities that they had been denied in so many other occupations. So they took an opportunity and ran with it. And here's my statement to that. It takes one person to stand. One person. I do want to say one other thing here um, as well, because this hits both people of color and females. To further his mission, Powell in 1928 founded the Bessie Coleman Aero Club, sponsored by the band leader Duke Ellington and the boxer Joe Lewis. According to the Los Angeles Times, the club was named after the world's first licensed African-American pilot. Her name was Bessie Coleman, who died in 1926 in a plane crash near Jacksonville, Florida. Interesting stuff. Okay, so um, some political humor. So I'm going all over the place on this show. I hope you stay with me. This is kind of a cool thing, and this is from avgeekery.com. If you haven't gone to the website, I highly recommend them about the military side of the air shows. So um, I'll just run through it real quick. I think it's pretty funny. This is not me, but it's a quote from the article. You guys are smart enough to figure that out. One of my first stateside missions took me just up the road to Wilmington, Delaware, as a co-pilot on an air show crew. The C-5 aircraft commander, Johnny Smooth, 
had a high-powered job in Washington, D.C. that paid very well. His job limited him to short-duration missions, and this would be one of them. People think that except for combat sorties, people in the military, some people, at least this author, says that um, air shows are the most dangerous military mission that you'll be called for, and this is why. Because everyone's watching you. Military retirees who, as a group, keep a close watch on the currently active crews. You know, the people like to turn other people in. A sector of retirees feels that they did things correctly, while the current force has let discipline and order slip compared to the old-timers. They will closely watch crew actions and report any discrepancies they perceive as the validation of their dim view of current military operations. Um, While the crew struts around to the admiration of showgoers, old-timers subconsciously want to draw attention to their past glories by tagging current crew members for discipline lapses. Johnny, this is, remember, Johnny, the captain of this airplane here, the commander, sorry, Johnny would provide a spectacular example of this airshow syndrome before we even landed and would pay an embarrassing price for doing so. Years later, I would be a similarly hapless victim of the syndrome, but this day belonged to Johnny, and I have no inkling of the syndrome that was about to break out as we flew the 15 minutes or so from Dover to Wilmington, about 40 miles north of the base. We had canceled our IFR clearance and contacted Wilmington Tower for our VFR visual arrival. Johnny made the call to the tower himself, a tower. Or, uh, Mac 4017 request high speed pass down the runway for a 5,000 foot right close pattern to a full stop. Tower cleared him as requested, and I should have suspected the trouble when he asked for a 5,000 foot clearance for a closed pattern, but I did not. About eight minutes later, it defined it himself. As we descended towards the airport, our airspeed climbed to 300 knots. I looked down on tree-lined neighborhoods flying by in a blur with barely enough time for me to mentally register them before they were gone. High speed at low altitude can be troublesome. The airflow across the control surfaces gets much greater than usual or expected, and the pilot actions can sometimes over-control and make pitch commands, creating a porpoise motion that was made worse by the pilot's effort to control. Fortunately, on this day, we didn't experience this problem, but it should have been considered prior to accelerating the 300 knots. One misstep at that speed descending towards the ground could have been catastrophic. Upon reaching 5,000 feet, Johnny pulled the throttles back to idle. And we descended towards the runway in silence. That silence ended at the departure end of the runway as Johnny threw the throttles up to near maximum power and smoothly raised the nose to 15 degrees with a right turn for our 5,000-foot close pattern. Going through 3,000 feet, he then pulled the throttles to idle again to slow the aircraft during the final 2,000 feet of the climb. From there, we made a normal landing, and he said later that he wanted to provide an advertisement for the air show the next day. Johnny probably would have gotten away with the um, excessive license he had granted himself for the maneuver except for one aspect. When he threw the big power burst off the departure end of the runway, he did so over the house of newly minted congressman and future vice president 
Joseph Biden. Senator Biden was not impressed. A phone call to the Pentagon led to calls to the Tamac headquarters at Scott Air Force Base, and Johnny's punishment for the episode mimicked the Chinese Communist confessional where the culprit must publicly self-critique himself mercilessly for his error. Johnny therefore stood before the assembled drill weekend crowd to include the wing staff the next month to explain how he could have been such an idiot to do such things. I guess we can assume that Joe Biden is not a fan of air shows. One more reason not to vote for him. Did I say that? Yeah, I said that. <laughs> 2,000! 1,000! Joe, set up! Power coming up, power coming right on up. Stand by the brakes, speed brakes in, ready now. Right turn! Stand by gear, gear now. Anyway, all right, so I hope I led you through a story this week on the show. My intent here was to give you a little bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly in reverse order, to give you a little bit of an idea of the importance of air shows in today's world. This COVID-19 has got our air shows dark, and I don't know about you, but I'm not going to stand for it. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. The new normal needs to be the old normal. We cannot continue in the air show industry with people wearing masks and socially distant and standing far away from each other. It just doesn't work. That's not who we are. It's a fearful response we're having right now. COVID-19 will end. Stop there. I'm afraid. And remember, this is not a show on COVID-19, but it will pass for one reason or another. And then we have our work cut out for us. You and me, I'm counting on your help. You and me, we need to stand tall. We need to make sure we're reaching out to our local air shows and volunteering. We need to make sure that if we own a business or operate a business, we consider sponsoring these air show events or sponsoring air show performers. We need to go back to the grassroots. The big air shows will be there. They're funded by the military, the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds and the jet demo teams, the F-22 and f 35 and 810 and we love it we love all the military stuff we love the big events like sun and fun we love the big events like oshkosh and the steel national championship air races we love all that stuff but we also need to think of the grassroots and it's important because we have history at air shows and we have the future at air shows right we see the new technology and we look at what the past has taught us Unfortunately, most of our history tends to revolve around war and overcoming obstacles. And that's why we're here. We can only act in the present. So by showing up and being present at an air show, ladies and gentlemen, is fun. It's entertaining. But it's more than that. It's making that spark for the next generation. It's letting yourself know when you look up and see excellence, you say, man, I can do that. I can do whatever I want in my life. I can take my crazy, stupid ideas and I can run with it. When you go to these aviation events, you're going to see people from all walks of lives with different airplanes, with different stories. The reason for the Renegade Aviator Radio Show is the stories. I bring you the stories of the performers. I bring you the stories of the venues, of the events. So come back each and every week. Go find me on the internet. 
Renegade Aviator Radio Show. Pretty simple to do. Go to my website, Renegade AV, the number 8R. And man, the air shows may be dark, but we are going after some world records. Go to worldrecordjet.com. Consider supporting us if you know of companies that will benefit from having three of our jets fly in front of millions of people Give them my number, 888-366-5256. A lot of stuff there at the end of the show. RenegadeAviator.com, WorldRecordJet.com. This is David Costa in the air with my TS-11 Iskra jet and on the air with you each and every week. I am the Renegade Aviator. See ya! Terminate. 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 Terminate.